Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. And this is Dimity McDowell. Yes, and this is a special episode of Another Mother Runner. We are presenting it without any commercial interruptions. Gosh, I feel like a, like a BBC documentary or something, right? <laughs> something, yes. Yes, so, well, we all know life has been hard for the past few months. The overwhelming news was about the coronavirus pandemic and the resulting economic upheaval. But sadly, there was also glaring, senseless stories of the killings of unarmed Black people, including Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Long-simmering racial and social injustice boiled over and out onto American streets. We are shocked and heartbroken, and we are also at a loss for what we, two middle white, oh, let me start again, sorry, two middle white age women. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. We, of course, were shocked and heartbroken, and we're at a loss for what we, Sarah and I, two middle-aged white women of privilege, could do or add to the conversation. We want to be sensitive, and we want to help and not hurt. Fairly quickly, as many people did, we realized our role in this conversation is to listen. So largely, that's what we're going to do in this episode. And we'll ask a couple questions, too. A few, yes. Our guests today are African-American mother runners, Brandy Dockett and Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs. Given that we are another mother runner, we want to narrow the focus of the conversation a bit and ask these friends to help us all understand what it feels like to be a Black person in the overwhelmingly white sport of running, as well as let us know what might be helpful for any of us to do, both now and going forward, as we all know this country has a long way to go. Ten years ago, we started Another Mother Runner to be a place for women runners. We pride ourselves in being an inclusive community, welcoming and speaking to a wide range of runners, no matter the pace, the age, the parenthood status, although we do love the dog mothers, don't we, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Size or race. A decade ago, a lot of women runners, often of a certain age and speed, did not feel they had a place in the running community or at races. While we in no way, no way at all, want to equate feeling left out of a running race with being mistreated because of one's race, we do feel our brand has been significantly shaped by people who can feel marginalized in a sport we all love. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm a little nervous for this conversation, but I'm excited that we're having the conversation. You too, Sarah? Yeah, perfectly said. Yes, exactly. Our first guest is Brandy Dockett, a a runner and triathlete who lives in Mount Royal, New Jersey. Brandy is a fitness professional and business owner, as well as a mom of two daughters, ages 16 and 11. In addition, Brandy is a BAM ambassador, meaning she helps spread the word of another mother runner, both in person and online. And before we dive too deep, I got to give you major props, Brandy, for leading the workouts in many happy miles. You came out one morning and did a hit workout. 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and people like loved it. And I was like, oh my God, this is so much harder than what I'm used to. Was, oh, I'm glad. It was a good spark. It was a good spark. Oh, so good. thank you for, for doing that. And thank you for being with us today. Oh, no, happy to join you. Good. I'm happy. It's an honor. Good. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start like we typically do on the AMR podcast. Tell us about your running background. Uh, so I've been running for longer than I, I can't imagine that I've been running this long. I feel so youthful. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I've been running since 1997, and that would make me so over 20 years. God. Uh-huh. Um, so, <laughs> and I started off like you know I was in my early 20s, and I decided to try to do a 5K, 
and did that and then went from a 5k to the marine corps marathon yeah mm. i would not recommend that but whatever <laughs> and i was a, i was young and youthful but it's still one of the, my it's still my pr so uh, i have to say it's one of the best experiences mm-hmm. so i've been running ever since so i i uh, run to stay sane. I ran before kids and after daughters. I run with them now. Um, so running is a standard for me. I mean, it's uh, people would say, "Oh, you like to exercise and you work out so much," but running is not exercise for me. Running is my sanity, mm-hmm. and it's my way to relieve things. I, I always tell people I have the best cries on, <laughs> on my runs because sometimes when it's just bottled up, and I'm one of those people that I'm not a uh, a quick confrontational person. So if something comes, I'm the one that thinks about, oh, I could have said that maybe mm-hmm. like five minutes later. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times runs are really good where I have those conversations where I say, oh, I could have said that, I could have said that. And, you know, but then I run when I'm happy. I run, you know, when I ate a donut for National Donut Day. So <laughs> <laughs> running is just a stand. Running is breathing to me. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so from that 5K back in 1997, I've been running ever since. I've done and everything from I've done six marathons, one ultra marathon. That's my one and done. Mm-hmm. And um, I moved into triathlons uh, sprints last year. Nice, nice, cool. nice. Cool. Well, let's roll the calendar back to 2019 and before. Um, the recent running, a recent running USA survey found that less than 10% of people in our sport are black. So, as much as you can, try to give us a sense of what it's like to be in that minority in the very white sport of running and triathlon. What's fairly interesting is you see, it's one of those things where I didn't really realize until I um, started going to more races and realizing, oh, I'm one of the few faces in the crowd. I think with track and field, it's a dominant sport within the black community. Uh, you see a lot of that. You see them very successful. You see one of the most popular athletes are the track and field for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the short distance running. And I never really thought about it for the long distance um, and how there aren't as many of us. And so for me, I never really felt super out of place until I real I read those stats years ago and I realized, oh wait, I am a I am really a minority here. Mm-hmm. Um I've never felt uncomfortable at, at many races. I've done really small my one of my my first half marathon was a super small um race in Delaware and you know it was probably me and my husband were probably mm-hmm. the only black faces in because he's also a runner mm-hmm. and um we were probably the only black faces. Uh we didn't feel out of sorts or you know not welcomed but at the same time yes we there aren't a lot of us and I think that having groups like uh, Black Girls Run which I actually am a member of and also my husband did run with Black Men Run Mm. um, I think they're really um, important to have Uh, the one thing I will say is that I will get questions not anymore but in the past I've gotten questions saying why do you have to why does it have to say black girls run and you know people want to say oh you know all colors I don't see color blah 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 I have gotten that in the past and then I have to explain to people that my um, my community especially black women has the highest rates of um, diabetes heart disease cancers you know we aren't 
we, we, our community is allowed to look, you know, thick or, you know, have the weight of, we don't question it as much. And I think, you know, that's killing our community. And I think when now that we have a group that promotes health, you know, not only do they promote running, but they also promote walking. And then, um, you know, I think that is so important that we support each other. And it's not as if we're trying to exclude other people and not say you can't join us because they we there are some other colors of the race in our in our group, including, you know, um, Latinas, and they now have a spinoff group, but that we still have a lot of people in our group that are actually for, uh, Hispanic or Latinas. And then, um, you know, we have some white faces too, and everyone is welcome in, in the group. But I think just to have that support, and when you go to races, it's also, um, we've seen what races support that community. Mm-hmm. And when they support, and we, and around here, um, especially, uh, we'll have races that will, you know, kind of want us to come now and, and support us. So we will go out and, and support them. So I think people have to understand it's not a, um, a segregated kind of thing or we're excluding. It's more of to just feel comfortable so that when we are in the races, we see a face that looks like us. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's you're part of a team too. And that's what's so great about running sometimes, you know, is especially at a race situation when you're all wearing the same, you know, singlet or tank top or whatever it happens to be. Like it's a nice reminder, especially as, as, you know, going through the crowd, if you're, you're a spectator and you see it again and again, it's kind of fun that everyone is kind of connected. Uh, What's fun too is that, and I get this from my friends who are white, who I run with and, you know, they used to say that, oh, I want to be part of that group because they, you know, and before I was part of um, Black Girls Run, when I would be at the races, they cheered for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that was very, that was very um, uh, awakening for me because that shows you that we want everyone to, we want to be welcomed and we want you to feel welcomed with us. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you could say, you know, we're just going to cheer for ours, our own when they run by. But they cheered for, you know, they cheer for everybody. They support everybody. And that's the beautiful thing. And I think especially telling now, I think Mm -hmm. we need to remember. Yeah. Yeah. That is a beautiful thing. I have been in races. It's been a while, but where um, a charity, they'll only cheer for their people who run by wearing their tank tops. And, you know, there's, we all know there's part of races where there's, there's no spectators for miles. It's like, come on, like cheer for me here. Come on. We gotta, gotta support everybody. So, so going for a run alone um, can be incredibly peaceful or incredibly fraught with anxiety, depending on your gender and race. So Mm -hmm. we've read of black runners steering clear of certain neighborhoods, you know, going out only in daylight, even wearing an Ivy league sweatshirt to broadcast respectability so is this your reality, Brandy, or of runners you know, runners? You know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's funny because when I was thinking about this, when you had asked, you know, in races, I feel safe. Mm-hmm. In races, I don't feel as if something's going to happen to me or something's going to go wrong. It is now when I run alone, when, and especially when my husband runs alone. Mm-hmm. I, we have had this discussion for years now. Even, you know, I live in... New Jersey, which, you know, you think, oh, you know, it's not a place where you would be, you would think that would have issues there. But uh, I, we run in our town and there are neighborhoods that I say to my husband, don't run in that neighborhood because early in the morning, because they don't know you. 
Now, if you would take a moment and really look, you'd see, oh, he's actually running for exercise. But now we've even seen with Ahmad Aubrey, that doesn't mean anything. Your bias does not matter in that, you know, it, the bias is there. It doesn't matter if you're just running. And for him, you know, in our town, our town um, is an old town that had a lot of development. So we've been here for 15 years, but there were a lot of neighborhoods that popped up after that. So if you go into a new neighborhood, they don't know you, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and for me, my husband, I have to worry about that. I, you know, he runs really early before work and, you know, I just make sure I know where his, his route mm-hmm. and we stay on the main roads. We very rarely, we do go in our neighborhood, a neighborhood across the street now, um, but that we used to not even do that. Um, you know, I think there's some towns that I won't run alone. Mm -hmm. I, and if I, and, uh, there's one town in particular that I thought I was trying to mix up my runs lately since, you know, quarantine, because I'm by myself now, I'm not really running with my friends. And I I thought, oh, should I run that way? And I thought, you know what? I, no, I don't think I should run by myself. And Mm -hmm. when I'm with a, with one of my fellow white running partners, my, um, you know, my best running partners, I will go with them. Mm-hmm. but I won't go by myself. Mm-hmm. And it's just a reality and it's known. And I think you will find that with every single black runner or runner of color. I, th- I don't think that is ever going to, until we see change, I think that'll always be because we don't know. And, you know, we don't, whether it's a resident and the resident can call the cop and, and we, you know, and then we have a cop following us, you know, even when I run and, um, I might, there might be a sidewalk next to me and I'm running in the street and I see a cop come by. I'm still very aware. Like he could, he could stop and have a problem with it. Mm. Mm. You know, it's, these are the, these are the things I, I, I do think about. And it is always on my mind now that I have um, a 16 year old who's a cross country runner. She stays in our neighborhood. Mm. She would like to start to run out in the thing. And I said, my husband will go out and run outside of our neighborhood, but um, I don't let her run while, when she comes home from school, I don't run, you know, when she's, when she comes home from school and if we're not home, I don't let her run at certain, like really gets dusk, you know, even if we have a headlamp, um, these are things that, um, I have to now worry about with, for her, cause not only is she black, she's a black woman. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's stacked. And so now I have to kind of make her aware and she's very good with that but I think it's even more now that she's got to be aware of these things sure sure um well you you brought this up already the running community made a statement with um hashtag I run with Maud honoring Arbery's death and running 2.23 miles on his birthday um it was really cool to see so many people joining in and it felt powerful but like most social media things you know it's can be gone on tomorrow's scroll um, and one of the people that I was looking through different hashtags and different posts and stuff, and Ashley, who is a fitness st- instructor in Atlanta, her comment included, you know, she said she's tired of hashtags until it becomes an issue for all and not just those that look like me will continue to sing the same song. Um, can you kind of talk about that and talk about the, you know, awareness is definitely helpful and honoring the person is helpful, but does that feel like enough, like to instigate a change? So I think... I think what happens is that everyone gets, you know, with the cause and and riled up and ready to go. And, and then it kind of dies down because something else replaces it. Mm 
Uh, you know, and now we have seen that. We have seen George Floyd. He's replaced, but he has also replaced many other in the past. Someone brought this up to my attention, and I actually uh, agree with them that I think the difference in this now, and Ahmad's, you know, I think he kind of, I, I think he got a little clouded over because I think I, I, it was beautiful to see the running community come together and see that. And But I think with George Floyd and seeing the full video and, and you can deny what was done sure. is now realized and, 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 and short amount of time. You know, even though um, Ahmad was in February, we didn't learn about it until what the end of all, in, uh, beginning of April or I guess it was April. And then only a short couple of um, weeks later, we've already had two other incidents. And, and, you know, I think, I think now everybody's eyes are open. I also think that with the pandemic, people can't run away. They can't be busy with their own lives. You know, sure. schools, schools canceled, mm -hmm. you know, um, work. Most people are home from work. Most people are, you know, whether they're on social media all the time or they're watching TV all the time, you can't, you can't avoid it can't you can't run from it it's it's now uncomfortable and you have to face it so i think now we're actually going to start to see some change what that is i don't know <laughs> because i think you know I, and 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 it's all like she's right you know all it is you know hashtags and uh, you know i think you know it's great that people are putting hashtags and i run with ahmad and this and that but i think what has to come after that is continuing education of their children, continuing education of themselves, um, and actually reflection mm -hmm. of themselves as to, you know, why do you, why do I have this bias? Why do I feel threatened that if a, if a guy's running down the street, you know, why do I automatically feel threatened by that instead of saying, oh, he's running, you know, and why do you have to think of a negative thing on top of that? Mm -hmm. And then I also think, um, you know, but then it also goes beyond that. It goes into our school systems and it goes into, you know, the policing. It, it, so at the end of the day, it opened up the wound and the wound now has to start to heal, but it's so deep that it's not going to happen. I think, I just don't want people to think it's going to happen overnight. And I think if everyone just picks one thing that they can do, mm. whether you donate money to a cause or, you know, um, you talk about it with your children, you read a book or, you um, you stop and think before you f you say something or put something out, and then you kind of examine why you think that way. I think that if everyone starts to do one thing instead of just glossing over and, and putting up something on faith on social media just to look like you're part of it, I think then we'll start to start to see some change. But I mean, it's a it's a deep, deep, deep deep divide, yeah. divide. Mm -hmm. you know I, I have a history degree so I uh, I one of my focuses was on African-American history in college mm -hmm. so um you know for me I'm a little cynical about it because I think people like people were outraged about um rioting and picketing and protesting but they have to understand this is centuries of pain and centuries of things but I think that what's nice now is that we're seeing more people not of co not of color mm -hmm. standing up and saying you know what you're right you know so that kind of i'm hoping that's the the difference now
So Brandy, you talked already about kind of what we can do um, and especially talking to kids. And so we wanted to know, how do you talk about the racial and social unrest um, inequity with your daughters? And how would you suggest other parents talk about it with their kids, um, especially white parents who don't experience the world the same way? So it's interesting because I just saw something on, um, I just read online and someone had asked a similar question and the person said, expert said, you know, we talk to our children very early because we have to, we are, our children are very aware that we look different. You know, my daughter, you know, had her, her blonde friend, as she called it, and she had brown skin. So that was early on at, you know, three years old. So I think some people think that you, you don't need to discuss it early, but I really believe that you discuss it early, but you, you, you discuss it in a way where you, I think if everyone remembers that we want, you know, as, as parents, we want our children to grow and be happy and be successful and whatever they, whatever that means for them and to, you know, go on and live beautiful lives. That is the same for everybody, no matter what color they are. And I think we doesn't make anything different in that aspect. So if you start to teach that early on, then that child can start to show respect to everybody and remember that we eat just like everybody else. We we like the same things. We, you know, we can be like that and not and 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 there are differences that make everyone beautiful and we have beautiful experiences and history and ancestors but if we remember that that everyone does then i think that will help with the respect so i think when you sp you explain it to children you might say you know for our daughters you know we're the opposite so i might say so i said oh yes well she's got white skin and she's still your friend and we you know we're different and this is your your hair texture is different than your friend who has straight hair and this is why i believe in just being honest and open with your children um i think you have to be age appropriate for my 16 year old um who's going to be driving new jersey 17 for driving but she'll start driving with learner's permit, I do have to have that conversation about what to do when a cop comes, you know, how to, it's still, even if we start to get changes in there, I still have to have that conversation with her because my father had that conversation with me and my father was a cop. Oh. So, um, you know, that does not change. So I think, and I'm sure, I don't know if other families who are white do that or not, but for us, it's still a reality. Um, my daughter, we had the conversation last week and we, I, I asked her how she felt and she, you know, said that she was scared. And so we had to go through and I, you know, we, I talked about why she was scared, how she felt this. And I just told her at the end of the day, you can just do what you can do. Um, you put your faith out there that everything, you hope that everything will go okay. Um, and know that, at, that not everyone wants to cause you harm but to always be aware. So I think that as they get older, you experience that. Um, I also believe in uh, sensitivity um, and realizing whatever you say or you put out there in the universe, whether it's social media or words, just, just know that there's a human on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. sure. I, think, I think that it's, we're in a society that allows us to voice our opinion, but we do it in a closet way. 
and you don't realize that those words that you say are, are still going to be felt and heard. So if you are going to stand by your words and stand by your actions, then you need to do that and realize the ramifications of that. So I think by teaching children also that, because they're in a world of social media, they're in a world that I've never experienced before. Um, but if they realize, you know, what you say and what you put out there is a, is a reflection of you. So, you know, if you're going to teach hate, hate or even um, not even support, say your friend, you know, with our daughters, with my daughter, um, she had to do something and had to stand up for herself and she had a couple friends stand up for her. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, teach that also don't, uh, teach that if there's something that they don't think is right, mm -hmm. be an advocate in whatever way that is. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's the other thing too. I think, um, you know, for a while people will say, you know, this isn't right, but they don't put any, they don't support it in whatever way that is. And I think that the more people that stand up, like we're seeing now in these protests, the more people that stand up and say, nope, nope, this is not right, is the, then we know that they will be the majority and, and, and the, hate, the hate will be the minority at some point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Brandy, so much for taking time to talk with us and, and giving us some insight into this situation. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's yeah. an honor. I enjoy <laughs> workout now class. I got to make sure it's a rest day before that. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm all ready to go for my next one. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I'm going to be a little sore. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you. Our next guest is Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs, a runner and mom to a nine-year-old son. Jennifer is the bishop or chief pastor to 48 churches and a school in central and southern Indiana. She's been preaching and teaching about dismantling systemic racism for over 20 years. Jennifer, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. I am delighted to be here. Good, good. We are delighted to have you. Yes, yeah. So Jennifer, before I ask you to tell us about your running background, I want to share how we met. Yeah. So it was in the, um, as I recall, it was the spring of 2010 at a women's athletic camp run by former pro triathlete and, and all around great person, Colleen Cannon. And it was in Northern California. And stop me if I get any of this wrong. It was either in or near Sonoma County, right? It was in Sonoma. That's right. Yeah. 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 And so I was there on assignment for some magazine and you were there as a camper. I love getting to know you, spend time with you. And one thing I especially remember is a bike ride we went on together. Uh, it was epic. <laughs> you, had, you had like either like a major issue, like whether it was bike trouble or were you thrown off your bike? I fell. It was pouring fell. down rain That's and what we it went was. through some town and a truck yes. was bearing down on us and yes. flipped. <laughs> That's what I was like, wait, why do I think she like, I was going to use the word flipped in that. And I was like, that can't be right. And yes, you were such a trooper about the whole situation. But I just remember us being like, what just happened? Oh, yeah. Because remember, we were biking through the rain and we had lost the group. We were wondering yes. where we were. Yes. And then we remember we were at the front. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't think I was in that kind of shape, but it was amazing. I know, I know. So we bonded. We sure did. We sure did. So hopefully, you know, uh, we will all stay in the seats that we're in right now. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, so we know you're a resilient biker who can take on, you know, it's um. But give us a little bit more athletic background about yourself, Jennifer. When you started running, what you like to do these days, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I started running in late in my college life. I I rode crew actually for mm. um, a little bit my freshman year, and so I started following you all really early on because of the crew connection. Um, uh -huh. After I'd already graduated, but I loved crew, but I hated to run, so I used to cycle to the to the boathouse. But by my senior year, one of my um, one of my housemates who ran all the time said, "You know, just try it." So I borrowed somebody else's old Brooks running shoes and started running and I was overweight and just wanted to, to, but I was always active. And over time, just by running three days a week for about half an hour at a time, I really fell in love with it. So I've been running almost more or less pretty consistently, no matter what my physical fitness was since then, since my senior year of college. And then in 2010, when Sarah and I met, you were doing the book tour for the first um, AMR book. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd gotten really serious about it again and started racing and doing triathlons at that point and have been um, pretty serious since then. Like, you know, I, was, I would run recreationally, but then I became an avid lover of running culture and triathlon culture. So nice. it's been about a decade of that. Very cool. Um, so we asked Brandy this as well. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a person of color in such a white sport, um, running and triathlon? Um, we know none of us can really run or walk in someone else's shoes, but uh, have you had any experiences that were different than maybe uh, someone like Sarah and I would have had? You know, I would say this. I've been thinking about, you know, how much I never really thought about race and running. You know, I just did it. And, and mostly because it was a solitary experience mm -hmm. or I would run with a friend every now and again. But it was when I started going to races more regularly and running, trying to join teams, I realized, oh, I'm one of one or two people on my triathlon team. Mm -hmm. And then, so this is again at about 2010, and then I began to realize that there were these groups. So Black Girls Run, I think, was founded around 2012. Mm -hmm. um, the Black Triathlon Association was founded around 2010, 2012. And all of a sudden, I began to find that there were people who looked like me who were in these sports, which I never got that sense before. And when I thought about all the folks who I would run with when I was running as a solitary person, I was, it was never another person of color until um, I discovered Black Girls Run in some other groups. And I thought, oh, this is a much more diverse space. And yet um, it would be hard, I'd be hard pressed to know that by showing up at races or going to expos or looking at magazine covers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are there changes you'd like to see the running community adopt that would make it more inclusive and welcoming to, to and that's to everyone, not just African-Americans? Yeah, you know, well, I, it's, it's an interesting thing because I realize um, representation just matters so deeply. You know, I'm I, in my field as a, uh, an Episcopal bishop, I'm the first black woman to be a head bishop of a diocese in, in the history of, the church, Christianity. So that's a oh big gosh. deal. And um, so hi, people... oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you didn't put 
no, Jennifer, you're just like, yeah, I've been doing this work for a long time. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Typical, like humble Midwesterner. So yeah. Um, <laughs> congratulations on that. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. Thank you. But you know, it was when I was elected, people were like, you know, this is really big. I thought, you know, I'm just doing what I do. And then I realized as these little girls would come up to me saying, I never thought I would ever see a, a bishop who's really important, like who looks like me. And I, you know, I was, you know, this year, years old, when I really, really got that. And then I began to think about the absence. And so, you know, I didn't think about it. And then I realized as I look back, I go, oh, why aren't there more black people, Asians, Latinos on the cover of Runner's World or other magazines? Why, why does it matter so much when I go to Wazelle's website and I see all kinds of colors of women and I just think, oh, this is great. But then I realize, oh, this is not, this is not um, typical. And, that, and that's a, a loss. And so I think it, there's something affirming in knowing that there, at least for someone who believes that diversity is a beautiful gift in the world and it's from a spiritual place, it's the way that creation has been designed from the very beginning to be diverse and to systematically have that lacking in the running space and the athletic spaces that I, I dabble in, I, I think is problematic um, at the end of the day. Okay, Jennifer, as we mentioned when we introduced you, you've been working for two decades on dismantling systemic racism. So this powerful push for acknowledgement and change must feel especially monumental. Um, before we get to what's happened in the past couple weeks and months, can you talk about um, your perspective? How much progress do you think we've honestly made as a society over the past 20 years? Oh, my goodness. You know, I think the progress would be for me measured most in how many people are willing to have this conversation. Okay. Because I, I've just noticed, I mean, I, I'm not a professional diversity, equity, inclusion person, but it's been because I'm in a predominantly white church and have been in a, a, a church that's historically wrestled with issues of, um, of, of race because of the, you know, we started with the founding of this country. And so the history of the United States and the history of the Episcopal church are intertwined. And here I am, this, person of color leading in this church, needing to have the conversation because the minute I would walk into the room, often the only black person in the room, you know, that would be the unspoken thing. And people wanted to talk about it and to ask the questions about why, why is it that we're not as diverse as we might want to be? Why, um, why is it that there is a undercurrent of um, race and privilege that undoes us in this country so deeply and is violent to, to um, people of color? And so just from, uh, as a priest and pastor, like those conversations were ones that I was either invited into or wanted to have or needed to have and found that over the last 20 years, more people want to have the conversation because they see that it can't just be whatever the history books told them originally about what this world and what this country is about. You know, that equal opportunity hasn't been equal, that um, the, the, the um, access to the quote-unquote American dream has never been fully realized for a lot of people. And why is that? And when people have been crying out about violence being done because of race and racism, um, finally people are going, okay, wait a minute. So I'm hoping we're at a, a bit of a tipping point now because mm -hmm. what's happening now is a stark contrast to what was even happening four years ago. Sure, um, sure. You know, the summer of 2016 was not, you know, that was a violent summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the same reasons but we're in a different place now and so yeah. I, I tend to be 
I mean, I'm an optimist typically, and I am, you know, it's been hard lately, but I feel like if more people are asking the questions, talking about why this is, doing the work for white folks of understanding, like, what is it that's getting in the way for me and for black folks? What is it that's, you know, what can we do to, to stand up straight in this world? And, and uh, you know, there's just it's complex, but I think more of us are bleeding in the right direction towards change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so you talk about conversations and one of the things when Sarah and I were discussing having this podcast is, you know, I worry really about saying the wrong thing um, to either start a conversation or during a conversation, right? It's like, and this is not the same thing, but, you know, sometimes when um, I heard over plenty of different sources that said, like, if you say to veterans, thank you for your service, like sometimes they get sick of hearing that, right? You know, and you're like, oh, but I thought I was saying like the proper thing, right? So, you know, I'm not averse to those hard conversations, but do you have any ideas on how to make a conversation meaningful and productive on both sides? Yeah, I would say, so one of the things that comes with my background from when I was working in Chicago, I got trained in the Fierce Conversations mm-hmm. Method, which is a organ, organizational corporate organization um, thing, but it's, but we started using it in the church because we realized that Susan Scott, who wrote the book Fierce Conversations and created the training based out of Seattle, was all about how the conversation is the relationship. And if you can't have conversations that matter, then you don't really have a relationship that matters. And one of, there are lots of things that are um, helpful for just not having a better business, but just being a better human being out of fierce conversations. And one of them is that, uh, we kind of coined this term, that a raggedy conversation is better than no conversation. Mm. So, if, so knowing that the, the, a conversation of consequence is meant to be one that builds and deepens the relationship. If I know that going in, even with something on a topic that is going to be highly depolarized and divisive, if I expect that I'm going to, tr- regardless of what the other person expects, if I expect that I want this relationship to be more bonded um, on the other side of the conversation, I'm going to stick with it in a different way. And it gives me permission for when I mess up or get, say the wrong words to say, you know what, that's like st- full stop. That didn't go come out the way I wanted it to come out. I may have hurt your feelings. I don't feel right about what I said. Can I just get a do over and start over again? Mm-hmm. Like we need permissions to be able to have the raggedy conversation because these are hard emotional topics, particularly around race and privilege. And what's the right thing changes every minute, right? So yeah. there is no right thing. We have to be willing to give people grace and to have grace with ourselves to be a little raggedy. But if we stop talking about it, if we stop having the conversation, we're dead in the water, like all of us. And that's kind of what the hope is right now. Like finally we're talking, even if it's clumsy, we're finally talking versus pretending everything's okay and not talking about it while people are dying. Mm-hmm. I can do clumsy and raggedy. That is a skill set that I, I hold deeply in my heart. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. down with that. Thank you for giving. Because really it is permission because, you know, sometimes you come at it, you know, everyone has their own perspective. Everyone has grown up in their own lane. And, you know, if, as, as long as I can acknowledge that, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best here. I'm really trying to figure out your perspective and where your pain points are or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. not to back to me, but... Like I remember back in when I was an ESPN reporter, which I mean, come on, like I had no idea. Like I had the big four sports, like I just came in 
you know, saying, hey, I don't know anything about hockey, so just come at, come, come at me at the very most basic level, you know? And if you kind of admit that up front, it gives you permission to ask the stupid questions, right? Well, exactly. And so, again, that's, you know, the, the Fierce Conversations has these four different things, and one of them is that you expect to learn something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, you expect that you're going to actually learn something either about yourself, the other person, the topic, but if we go in every conversation of important conversations thinking well I know what the other person's gonna say and um, I'm, a, I'm gonna go in expecting to be you know hurt or offended versus curious mm -hmm. then you know we're, we're gonna have that kind of conversation so there's an openness a, a, an attempt to be real a willingness to be clumsy at it and the expectation that you know what even if this person is gonna come at me with a very different perspective on this I might actually learn something that helps me out. So why not listen with that kind of intent? That changes us if we can take that posture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and so that reminds me of um, we uh, did not post on social media for a couple of days and just sat back and tried to listen and and understand rather than um, saying something that was offensive or off key or or something. And so that we put up today. One of our team members is um, looking, uh, going to be reading this book, and there's a movie about it. And now I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember what it is. I, I can look it up, but that um, is there anything that you would recommend is would be instrumental for? Yeah, it's um. Let me see. It's finding, um, finding mercy. I think it is. Sarah. Yeah, just Isn't mercy. Just, just mercy by okay. Brian Stevenson. So um, and then we asked if there were other recommendations for what people were reading, listening, you know, kind of viewing. And Jennifer, you know, given that this is something you've been working on for 20 years, are there, um, you know, books or movies or podcasts that you would suggest we listen to so that we could kind of help make that conversation? Because I don't want the burden to be to say, okay, I'm really raggedy and clumsy and you're going to tell me what to say or when I'm being, you know, that, that, that we can educate ourselves as well so that we can, um, you know, hopefully come to the conversation more informed. Yeah, you know, I, I would say that there are um, a number of resources that are multiplying all the time that are current, and it's it's fascinating. You know, Brian Stevenson is a, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of books, right? So it depends on whether you're wanting to look at, say, the criminal justice system and how we got here, and Just Mercy is really impactful for that, and the movie is, it's um, an hour and a half or so, and so you can kind of put a toe in that water. Mm -hmm. um, is it Robin DeAngelo's book, White Fragility is another mm -hmm. one that many people have been reading a lot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, Stamps from the Beginning. Mm -hmm. and, you know, anything that he writes, I think helps us to understand particularly in the United States, what our um, history is around race in a really comprehensive way. Mm -hmm. It's a long but good deep read. And then you know, if you're on Twitter for five minutes, there's just a lot of stuff out there right now where people are posting lists and books yes. by authors of color and how to talk to your children about race and racism and things like that, that I think I've never seen such a flood of like, oh, look, there's a lot of, there's a lot out there. And so um, the thing I would say is, you know, find something that looks like it might speak to you right now and understand that this is the rest of our lives we're going to be learning mm -hmm. and trying to unlearn racism. There's nothing about like we can read a couple of books and be done. This yes. is the rest of all of our lives because changing systems and um, unlearning the things that we all have been um, sort of in, inhaling for the last whatever number of years we've been on this, this planet mm 
mm-hmm. is a is a lifelong work. So you know, this being curious and a lifelong learner about it, so that we can unlearn the things that are tearing us apart, and to keep looking for those new voices and amplifying those voices mm-hmm. um, as we can. I think is part of the work, and we can all do something. Like you know, this is I would say you know it's hard. It's easy to feel like polar, um, not polarized, feeling stuck and not able to move, kind of immobilized because there's so yeah. much. Yes. But, you know, start somewhere and then see where it leads and keep going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that feels so good to me, Jennifer, too. I mean, I was talking to a friend about this and it's like, I feel like, you know, sometimes it feels, and this is the wrong word, but black and white, right? Like either I'm doing nothing or I'm standing at the Denver State Capitol, you know, protesting, right? right? That's like, I'm, you know, I mean, yes, I my heart is there. My reality is not there right now. I just can't. No, it's not, I don't want to say I can't make it happen, but life can get in the way and I've got kids and I've got a job and I've got all these other things, right? But I want to show that I'm there in spirit, right? So I like the idea of just not, you don't have to be all or nothing, right? You can just take it at a pace that makes sense for you and where you are in your life right now, right? Well, yeah, because life and stage dictate things. I mean, we're trying to, you know, I'm into a protest and and then another march with other um people of faith on Sunday, I think it was. And anyway, I mean, those are the two places I've been at with lots of people in the the midst of a pandemic. And so, you know, we've got a pandemic of the coronavirus, we have a pandemic of police brutality and racism, and they're multiple and they're all dangerous. And so we've got to choose and make some hard decisions about where we put ourselves. But some people are called to go on the protest line, other people, are called to sit Zen and to, to you know, meditate and to lift up good thoughts. Other people are called to write and advocate and work on policy. Some of us are called to teach and um, in the education space to help our children unlearn the things that our culture implicitly tells them. And so there's something all the time and it's, there's no one thing at any time. Like you could just pick the thing that works for you to be able to do now don't worry about whether you're doing enough because doing absolutely nothing is the worst thing, but doing a little bit of something, mm-hmm. it's all good. You know, I mean, you need not to be judging each other about that. But I think um, the way in the AIDS crisis, people would say silence equals death. You know, mm-hmm. that was the mm-hmm. gay men's health crisis logo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a sense that silence is killing us here. So there are lots of ways to speak and they don't all land on the protest line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We're going to leave it there. And thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. And um, I wish I wish we could go on a bike ride that was not in the rain and that <laughs> didn't see you throwing from the rain. One day, <laughs> one day. I know. I keep looking at the AMR retreats going, I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back to it. Yeah, I know. The yeah. the Spokane one in 2016. My gosh, that seems yeah. like so long ago. <laughs> I know. Oh, oh my goodness. Anyway, thank you for all you do. You all are so great, keeping me on the road and inspiring me. So thank you. You. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. You're wonderful. And, and uh, stay safe. Will do. Take care. So that felt really good. I felt like uh, there's a space for everybody at the table at the, at the pace and the perspective that they bring. And mm-hmm. um, I just think we got to just keep moving together, kind of step by step, mile by mile, right? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for putting this together, Dimity. I'm really glad we had this conversation and we look forward to continuing it. And um, and hope people gain something from it. Um, our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. Many happy miles. To all of us all the time. 